Hello, hello. Welcome to Back to Life, the podcast where we explore recovery and creativity, whatever that may mean to you. This is the third episode and I'm so happy to hear that so many of you enjoyed the first couple of episodes. Some of you have even left some lovely reviews and that has really made me smile. Um, And it also means other people are more likely to listen. So thank you so much for that. I'm your host, by the way, I'm Millie. I'm a DJ and broadcaster and a person in recovery uh, from a lot of stuff, really. Addiction, mental health challenges, eating disorders, lots of stuff. It's now really important to me to challenge the stigma that still exists around so much of this stuff and to use my experience to hopefully help others still in the darkness. And that leads me on nicely to our guest this week who's doing exactly that. Her name is Gemma Jennison. Gemma is a registered mental health nurse and full-time lecturer in Birmingham. She's also studying for a PhD in black males, mental health and hip-hop. She's also been a music promoter for the last 20 years or so, currently with Sip the Juice, and if that wasn't enough, she's also a mum. I came across Gemma through her project Man Down, which is a film, training programme and community tackling male mental illness and distress, specifically in the music industry. I actually hadn't met Gemma before this interview, but we got on so well that I know we're going to stay in touch. She's an absolutely incredible woman, as you'll hear, funny, sharp, compassionate and a true survivor. And before we get started, I just need to let you know that we're going to be talking about uh, mental illness and suicide, uh, mainly in within the context of prevention. But if that's going to trigger you, then perhaps find something else to listen to or listen to one of our previous episodes. So, yeah, let's get into it. I started off by asking Gemma if there was a personal reason for her interest in mental health. My mum had Munchausen's by proxy and and bipolar disorder um, and was really poorly treated by services, social services, psych services, GPs. I remember much of my childhood being palmed off to... Um, other family members or friends of friends who were aunties who weren't aunties and um, seeing my mum really living in a trauma set of really self-deprecating language, self-deprecating behaviour, um, starving herself, being really um, really chaotic in her mood, being really labile, so being really happy one minute and really sad the next. I never really understood it to be what we now know as bipolar, but um, there was manifestations of illness that, that, that were leveled towards me and my brothers. Munchausen's by proxy is, is um, uh, a sort of illness or fabricated illness that is perpetuated onto somebody else. And generally, um, it's generally maternal towards their, um, towards siblings or children or whatever. So my mum did it towards me and my brothers to a less or greater degree, depending on which one of us you spoke to. But my mum constantly had me in hospital for one thing or another. And um, this really started to have this huge impact on me. And I started to develop what I think perhaps is some sort of personality disorder as a result of that. I started to live in this alternate reality of life that that wasn't true and started to lie to my friends about what I was living within because I was so ashamed of it. Um, I was in and out of people's homes. I was in and out of care and... um, my mum then became really physically ill. I I still have lasting reminders of 
those behaviours I still have I've got a really bad gut because of my mum doing things that would harm me to get me into hospital broken limbs and those sorts of things so you know the lasting impact is still there also seeing my mum being taken away in an ambulance several times and those sorts of things and my mum being one hand that you know the best person in the world and then on the other hand being someone who was really spiteful and really hateful who used to say that I was being given away and making me pack my bags for social services and waiting at the window for them so you know in adult life these sort of trauma sets manifested in me having you know eating disorders um, and I used to comfort eat and I used to secretly eat and I used to binge eat and then I would make myself sick um, because I knew that what I was doing was really harmful and then I got into really bad addictive cycles of wanting to go out and party and um, you know all of that stuff getting lost in the weekend and and, and all those sorts of things and my mum became physically ill with emphysema when I was in my early teens um, and, and died um, but in actual fact she took her own life while she was an inpatient at at a hospital because she had no real quality of life and the the narrative her whole life has always been that she was really problematic really difficult and really complex and then you add to that the fact that she couldn't ever breathe um my mum led a really exciting life up until she had my brothers and I she was a bunny girl and you know had this really illustrious life of being a dancing girl who was you know revered by many a celebrity um chased by many of a celebrity and i would argue looking back on those times was probably quite badly exploited by by some of them um so she was a really complex lady um and took her own life and after that i just had this real sense of um not really belonging anywhere had no relationship with my family I you know I'm an island and um, that can be really really difficult at times to to say that even out loud is quite tough so I've always had to sort of fend for myself and I've always had this really sort of tough external layer where people always tell me that you know I'm either really intimidating or really charming depending on what side of me you get but all of that is sort of you know harboring quite a lot of trauma and quite a lot of upset and distress that I sort of still live within and despite the amount of therapy the amount of tablets that have been forced down my throat or you know told me that they'd be great for me um I still still live within you know so um becoming a mental health nurse was something that sort of acted as a sort of catharsis but acted as a sort of education as well into understanding what I'd lived through um with my mum and you know the provision of care that we have in place now versus what we had in the 80s and early 90s and how hugely different that is but also the fact that I just would never want anybody to live through what I lived through you know I'd never want to to hear anybody living those stories and and living those lives and you know I took all of those things into my adulthood and I reacted really badly to them you know I I I was a terrible friend I was a terrible partner and until I became a mum I had no real concept of what it was to be you know in a in a healthy loving relationship or to understand what parental love really looked like wow wow you've really really been through so much that's a really tough start Really tough start, um, but it, just something that came to mind um, when you mentioned that you perhaps had a personality disorder. I was talking to a, a clinical psychologist for another piece of work that I was doing, and um, you know she was talking about basically you know mental health services and our our approach to mental health is not going to really move forward until we recognise the impact of developmental trauma, and that was really the thing you know that often we kind of put that in the box of 
oh, this person's got a personality disorder, but what is a personality? Where does it stem from? And it's usually from developmental trauma. And what you've just outlined is huge amounts of developmental trauma. But I guess, you know, the symptoms of that, you know, um, they don't fall neatly into a particular diagnosis necessarily, but they do impact a person's life or ever. I think it's really important to point out that up until about, I think it was about 2012, 2013, personality disorders weren't ever in the diagnostic criteria. There was a real stigma around personality disorders because it was perceived that personality disorder would be just people with behavioral problems and to some degree that is true but you know to a great degree what it, what we're seeing is a physical manifestation and the outpouring of distress and you know what we're seeing is maladaptive strategies of coping in a response to developmental distress or developmental trauma and you know I can tell you as a nurse the amount of times I hear or have heard on wards when people say they're just a PD they're just a personality disorder and the reductionist view of what those people are doing how they're living their lives and you know why can't they just behave why can't they just get a grip why can't they just you know instead of instead of saying you know what's happened here what what are we dealing with you know what are you what are you battling through what are your thoughts what are your feelings and why you know why do they manifest this way instead of saying you know what what's what are you doing this for and being really judgmental and accusatory why are we not saying let's let me listen to that and we don't listen to that yeah you know personality disorder if we're going to use that term I mean certainly like people with demonstrating those um those symptoms or those behaviors or those manifestations definitely are really difficult like and and I talk from someone who's also diagnosed with a personality disorder you know it's definitely a really difficult person to to treat handle interact with but yeah I think you're absolutely right I think um there's a huge huge stigma and it's like and even the word is just horrible like it's like I, I it's hate like the there's title. something fundamentally wrong with yeah. who you are basically is what it sounds like a personality disorder you're disordered Therefore, yeah. we expect you to behave this way. So what can we expect because you're disordered? I just think I think the collective name for, for personality disorder is just it's just so harmful. You know, and I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a real proponent of labels, really. I just find them a little bit problematic because I think, you know, some people find it really helpful to have a diagnosis and some people don't. And some people live within it and some people don't. And everybody's very, very different in that regard. But I just uh, I just feel that sometimes you can't put these behaviors and these coping strategies and these complex nuanced personality traits in a bracket that tells someone you're disordered because if you're going to start talking about stopping stigma you know as a society well the stigmas are right there in the diagnostic labeling of someone yeah absolutely so Gemma can we go slightly sort of uh, left here and um, can I can I talk to you about your formative moments um, with music because I know that music is a huge part of your life yeah um, and you've been a lifelong music head what were, what was your like formative what, how did you cut your teeth um, so uh, one of my cousins who I obviously have no relationship with anymore introduced me to hip-hop when I was really young and um, for me listening to listening to rap music and listening to hip-hop and listening to that sort of thing sort of um it aligned really with what my mum had had instilled in me as a kid. My mum always, always had records, and every in a time of crisis, it was always there was always records. It was always we'd go to the record player and we'd be like, okay, let's just put this on and just dance it out, you know. And that was 
probably one of the greatest gifts that she ever gave to me you know I've still got her record collection here I'm looking at it in fact and um when I heard some of the, the hip-hop music that my cousin was playing I was able to pick out samples from it and say oh that's Aretha Franklin or you know that's Jimmy Smith the keyboard the Hammond keyboard player or that is James Brown or that's the JB's or you know that's blood sweat and tears and um my cousin was like there's, How? there's nothing not much more satisfying than you know, picking oh. up a sample. It's <laughs> I know, and it, and you know what? It, I'm still I'm still that geek. But um, so yeah, I started listening to hip hop, and then I just found this world where I could escape. It was nothing like the world I was in. It was it was this storytelling, narrative telling about other people's lives and other people's worlds, and I was living for it. I was just so deeply involved in the fact that these people were telling me something I didn't know existed. And, um, you know, I'm unashamed about the fact that I like the most ignorant gangster rap. You know, I've got Prodigy from Mob Deep tattooed on my arm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a feminist who loves the Wu-Tang and loves Jadakiss and, you know, all of that stuff. So I got into hip hop and then when I went from hip hop, I got into going to hip hop events, buying records. You know, so I'd spend Saturdays at Purple Penguin Records or Replay. Um, and then I'd go to hip hop events. We'd go to hip hop events in a in a, in a a transit van. All of us are sat in the back. It was completely illegal. And we'd go to London and we'd go and see people like Tropical Quest or Gravediggers or Beastie Boys or whatever. And then when I was 16, I got into promoting. I didn't get any GCSEs. So I had to go to college and um, I joined the student union there. And I was like, you lot aren't representative. You're putting on all these indie nights. Where's all the where's all the rap music? People were like, well, if you want to put rap music on, you've got to do it yourself. So I did. And now I'm part of Sip the Juice. So, yeah, I've been putting music on for a really really long time I'm 43 this year so yeah it's, it's a long time so for me hip-hop became this culture of, of of acceptance it was a home when I didn't really have one and it was something that I was it was a complete avoidant behavior of me to just immerse myself in this culture and everything that went with it graffiti b-boying apart from beatboxing I cannot stand beatboxing because I've got autism so I find it really problematic but um yeah, so that's how I got into music, and from that, I've I've made some lifelong friends. You know that I would never have made if I didn't have that link to music. Yeah, amazing. So when did you start working as a mental health nurse? I started retraining in two thousand and ten. Uh, before that, I'd spent about eleven years working um, in youth offending and criminal justice, and I worked primarily in in sex crime and sex education. I, I spent a lot of time teaching naughty kids in people referral units about sex and the law and that it wasn't okay to touch girls' boobs on the, the bus stop uh, and then showing them how to put condoms on a condom demonstrator and being asked a lot, Miss, do you like anal? Uh, so I did that and worked a lot with people who were engaged in sexual, sexual deviancy or sexually harmful behaviours um, and then retrained to be a nurse in 2010, qualified in 2013, and worked on a male psychiatric intensive care unit for a long time, and then became a lecturer in 2016. Um, so yeah, doing both nursing and lecturing um, simultaneously, which is uh, draining, as well as doing a PhD. So let's get on to Man Down. Why did you start Man Down? What was the inspiration to start? Okay, so in 2019, in May, two of my friends attempted to take their own lives, um, two weeks apart. 
um, one of them, I I was at his bedside when he came around. He rang me at about six in the morning, and I'd, I had uh, glandular fever, and um, I could hear the hospital. I could hear the heart monitor, and I knew what he'd done. I was trying to desperately like. I was desperately trying to get my clothes on with a swollen throat, listening to him telling me that he'd taken an overdose. Running around my house like I was trying to get away from a one-night stand, you know, like the walk of shame, but trying to find your clothes in the dark. And um, a couple of weeks later, one of our other friends um, hung himself. And, um, yeah, he survived, and he lived in a brain injury unit up until November last year, and um, sadly lost his fight. But... um, what I realised was that at that point I was nursing, I was lecturing and I was around people in music still and I was I was hearing men talking to me about their experiences but what I wasn't seeing was them talking to each other and um, it, it really struck a chord when these two people did what they did and I thought, you know what, this has happened right in front of me and I could either decide that I've missed it and I'm a terrible nurse and a terrible human and a terrible friend or I could decide that actually I've got skills and I but every time I say that I always feel like Liam Neeson in Taken I've got a certain set of skills but um I I've got skills in you know in in being able to understand people's people's distress and I'm a nurse and I've worked in the industry you know promoting as a woman and that's really really awful at times and you're telling me this stuff we've got to get this space where you can tell each other um so what I decided to do was think about actually this is fundamentally from the top it's about getting into the industries and talking about look you've got people working in your industries and they're really struggling what are you doing and I'm really deliberate with with saying industries because as you know as someone who's been in the industry yourself there are there's a, a multiverse of different types of industry within the music indus, industries, um, you know, whether it's radio venues, um, artist management, being an artist, being a DJ, being a club promoter, being a live venue pro- promoter, being a sound engineer, being a roadie, you know, there's all those people, music plugger. There's just loads of things that, are, that go on in music that, that people don't really think about. And um, I started to have these conversations and the more conversations I was having I was like we should we should capture this we should capture this because if I can capture it I can take these stories into the music industries and I can give some training and whatever that training will look like will be determined from the film that we make and the stories that you tell us so because you know I've got a bit of a research head on I used the stories that men told me as a data collection method to inform what the training packages we would deliver as man down would look like so the aim is that we make this film and that the men tell us their stories that we write the packages and then that we we go into music industries and we we charge the people that have got the money to pay for it and we train them on meaningful conversations and normalizing human distress and not labeling people um and i'll come on to that in a minute and then what we can do from there is go into charities grassroots agencies and you know youth groups and teach it for free you know so everybody's got access to this knowledge and in that time what happened was mental health first aid came out and in that time covid happened and you know now what we've got is um a political well-being agenda where people have to have well-being on their hr agenda as a tick box because if they do that they get tax uh, relief on it and um so people are buying in packages training people and they're talking about it and they're basically focusing on depression and um 
and and anxiety but as we know as we've discussed there is a broad spectrum of of human conditions and human distress and trauma sets that that aren't just those two things I know that you're a feminist and I know that you've heard you describe yourself as such but why did you want to work specifically with men um, because statistically men are more likely to take their lives at, at this present time men of working age are increasingly taking their lives you know and there's a lot there's a lot of discussion around that around covid and stuff as well but you know people in the creative arts are more likely to to consider taking their own lives and not access help because of um because of appearance or because of expectation or because of stigma and those most of those people are men you know the reason i came into this is because in my in in two weeks two of the men in my world tried to take their own life and then you know i teach suicide awareness i teach suicide statistics and they don't lie you know men men are more likely to take their own lives than women you know there's a real risk to men um, and then what we add to that is the, the statistics around the fact that men are less likely to talk to each other. They're less likely to, to go and ask for help. What I already knew in nursing is what I what I found in research when I started to look at it is that black men are less likely to ask for help and they're less likely to go to GP surgeries. And they're 40% more likely to be in a mental health facility as a result of coming through criminal justice systems. And they are four times more likely to be put on a locked ward at first presentation of an illness such as psychosis and I the, a lot of the people I was speaking to were men who are from the black African or black Afro-Caribbean communities statistically women are more likely to reach out for help to, to primary care services and get through to secondary care services whereas men don't I am a feminist and I recognize feminism embraces the rights of all people and the rights of men and the rights of people who are trans male trans female and it's all inclusive and I wouldn't be a particularly good feminist if I didn't protect the people around me who you know are in need and I wouldn't be a good feminist if I didn't think about the future of my daughter's world you know and the systematic failures in terms of male health care that is happening around her as well you know it you know it's it's always an interesting one and research tells me that men talk to women much more so getting those stories from men was easy for me it wouldn't have been easy if it was a man doing those interviews yeah i i, I mean i i'm with you because i worked a lot on um, women's hour and been very sort of involved in in like feminism through that i mean when i first got into recovery basically I started becoming really interested in sort of feminist politics and sort of seeing my own personal experience within a sort of wider um, systemic context so that meant getting into politics and and all of that stuff educating myself and um, so yeah. working on, on women's hour I just had like a I think I just had a really kind of um, eye-opening conversation actually with them um, she was at the time the sort of founder or director of calm um, and also someone who'd spent her yeah. life in, in, you know, involved in feminism and then had this kind of realisation that she needed to help men. You know, she felt that like, actually, you know, women, we we do have these spaces now, you know, like we do have safe spaces and and men are being kind of like left behind, I suppose. And you see it, you know, you see it in the statistics. Absolutely, you do. Um, and obviously, you know, a couple of years ago, this was around the, the you know, this is when I started getting interested in the 
interested in the concept of toxic masculinity. Uh, yes. And I was wondering what you think about that term um, and and that concept. I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the phrase toxic masculinity. Um, it's not really my right to be able to say that though because it doesn't, it doesn't affect me directly. But I mean, t- masculinity is the 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 male in our life constantly lives in this state of having to either subscribe to being either not very emotional at all because that's what's expected of you or being angry in defense of something and having to stand up for something or being horny um they either need to bring home food or money or they need to be really good at sex and a really good partner and a really good dad and they then also need to be really ripped because of you know social media geordie shaw and all those sorts of types of programs and you know all of the the pro health and men's health magazines and stuff so they get they get they get quite a lot of body shaming as well dad bod is a phrase i just want to put in the bin um and manning up is a phrase i want to put in the bin but there's all of these expectations on men that i suppose unless you take yourself out of your own sort of you know your own kinosphere you're not ever going to know what it feels like to, to have those expectations placed on you so being a good dad being a good lover being a good partner being a good partner to whoever that is whatever gender that is then raising a kid and then but also being the protector but then also bringing home money but then also being really brave all of the time and then you know when you're tired and sad I'm not okay with that because actually you're a man so you just need to deal with it and those are the stories that men live in the constant sort of battle for men is I want to tell my male mates that I'm not all right but then what would what if they judge me and then when you put that in the context of something like music or something like hip-hop for example which is the thing I, I know most about because that's my area of research my PhD you know there's all of that stuff around posturing and all of the stuff that you know you've got to be tough and you've got to live within the lyrics and the storytelling that you're in and and now when we're having a move forward say for example someone like Illaman who's just brought out the ugly days ep where he talks about the fact that you know he's not all right some of the time we're moving into that space now where people can say i'm not all right in in something as male dominated and frankly misogynistic as as hip-hop but those worlds have got real issues around expectations of each other and male dominance and asserting male dominance and asserting, you know, male bravado and those sorts of narratives that are really unhelpful. But I think it's, I think that's really difficult for men. And I think, you know, if you listen to music and you listen to the storytelling in any song that has ever been written by a man, you know, you wonder what they're trying to actually tell you in that. We are moving into a time now where men are able and more willing to to use music as a medium to say look shit's really not cool (laughs) the world is insane and I'm not coping but generally what other vehicle do men have they play contact sports they do boxing they go to the gym you know they go to the pub and then all of those things about how men cope or not cope come out in those really negative behaviors of like pack mentality on nights out getting into fights getting into territorial fights football hooliganism for example I mean I did that at master's level I studied that and the subculture around that and how men feel emasculated and now what we're in is a cycle of men feeling emasculated again because people are losing their jobs because of covid or losing their identity as a musician or an artist and you know or as a chef or as a tattooer or any of those 
those creative worlds or worlds that have been grossly affected by COVID, um, men are really struggling within them. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, from what I gather, like your main focus with Man Down is tackling male suicide within the, the music industry. Um, is that is that right? I would say it's more looking at the male experience of distress and trauma in the music industry. And I'm hoping that reducing suicide rates generally is going to be the outcome. You know, that's the, that's the aim. But, you know, ma- the training that will be done for Mandan will be done with everybody in the music industry. It isn't just specific to men. Everybody will have it. But it's just that at the moment, men are the biggest crisis. And I think for me, in terms of... It, you know, reducing suicide rates is, is, you know, that's that's shooting for the moon, really. You know, but if I reach the stars and I get people talking and normalising, not feeling all right and not having to pathologise it and getting the medics in straight away, that that's also sort of all right as well. I'm, I'm happy with that too. I guess it's really useful from your perspective to talk about, you know, we all do know someone right now who is... Yeah probably suicidal is certainly very depressed is really really struggling what is the the best what can you do for that friend um, male or female I think the most important thing I've learned um, as a nurse um, as, a, as a person really and as a person who's who's worked with people who are who are in distress I think it's really difficult when you are emotionally attached to that person to be um, to be anything other than feeling sad that you feel like you're not doing enough or that you're not enough and I think it's about separating that relationship and often people just want to be heard the reason something like the Samaritans is so successful and changes lives is because when you ring them you just talk and people just listen and I think if you are in a position where you know somebody is actively suicidal it's about understanding the right questions to ask and when and to give the right space to let people talk and often people just want to listen and want to vent and often they might want to tell you that actually they do have a plan um, this has become so common um, of late because of covid that I've actually written some guidance which is on our website under a blog about talking to someone who's suicidal and it's about trying to when you hear the words I don't see a point anymore I just want to die or I want to kill myself or I'm done you know all of those sorts of phrases then it it's really easy to start saying things like what about your kids what about your partner what about your job you know you've got so much to live for and actually when someone's in that headspace I'm I'm sure I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here but when someone's in that headspace that's not the helpful stuff to say because all you're saying is you're a shit person because you're going to be leaving these people behind and that's really selfish that's the subtext you know that people can take from that that's not what you mean and that's not what you're saying but that can be the subtext so it's about saying okay why do you feel like that you know do you want to talk about this what can I do let me listen and giving people that space there are tips on there about asking people which is a really tricky question people who aren't saying I'm suicidal but you have your suspicions there's some tips on how you ask that question and what you do with the information when you get it Um, thinking about if people have a plan if they have the means and by means what I mean is are they have they got things like 
um, rope? Have they got a ligature point? Have they got knives? Have they got pills? Have they got alcohol? Have they got anything they can use to harm themselves? Have they got access to a car with a garage? Um, and are they starting to do things like giving their stuff away? Are they starting to make plans? Are they starting to put their their um, their affairs in order? Are they giving you money are they saying do you want this i don't want it anymore in large quantities it, there's all of those things to look for um and then i suppose the, the next thing to do is depending on what what stage these people are at or what stage they you feel they're at is to then get help uh 111 or 999 depending on how important how along they are in their plan or you know if they're saying I often have these moments where I feel like this, but I don't have a plan. It's about normalising that conversation and saying, okay, well, when you do have that again, let's talk it through or just tell me. Um, So there are some people in my life who are feeling suicidal and sometimes when they feel suicidal or feel like they're having these fleeting thoughts, they just send me a heart and then I ring and then we don't say anything. And sometimes they do say something and sometimes they don't. But I'm just on the end of the phone and they can if they want to. So it's for me, listening is the major, 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 major thing that people don't get right. And it's really hard when you're emotionally attached to someone. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's where you really have to put your own kind of discomfort to the side and just. Yeah. Um, just uh, just be there, I guess. Um Thank you for that. That's really, really, that's really useful. And I really like that, you know, that your friend sends you a little heart. I mean, just something yeah. really simple like that. That's that's something I'm going to take with me. Um, you said um, earlier that you hate the uh, stop the stigma hashtag. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Why? Why do you hate that? What I hate about stop the stigma, it's okay not to be okay, um, time to talk and all those sorts of hashtags is that those things are things that we already know. It's sort of staying the obvious. Actually, what, what we don't need is hashtags. What we need is action. We don't need, you know, those things aren't actions in themselves. Those things are tokenistic gestures of saying, I stand with people who are chronically ill or who are depressed and who are have low mood. Um, what they're not saying is that, I will do something about it what can I do about it and you know not everybody's in a position to do something I and I recognize that firstly we need a distinction between mental health and mental illness you know everyone's got mental health and that fluctuates and that's perfectly normal because life is shit sometimes and it's okay to say that you know but not everybody has mental illness you know so what we need to start doing is talking about mental illness and distress and trauma in a really transparent way. You can hashtag all you want about someone like Caroline Flack taking their own life because of the, the media onslaught that was levelled her way. Be kind. But then in the next breath, if you're then having a debate with somebody and calling, I don't know, people names and saying, well, you're, you're a fucking idiot because you can't spell through and through and thorough correctly. You're not being kind, are you? I think the Caroline Flack example is, it sort of illustrates something that I, you know, that I feel is just like sort of left out. You know, you see people posting or that they're supporting a mental health charity or blah, blah, blah. It's all great. And, and, and I think that's really good stuff. And I think it's amazing, like how much progress has been made in the last few years in, in certain areas, you know, um, but what I think is, 
uh, people are kind of glossing over like what actually supporting someone with mental health look like because it isn't easy sometimes when we're mentally ill we're just really really difficult to be around really really difficult to maintain relationships with you know so like rather than checking your friends checking your friends who are complete nightmares because they're the ones you know that need it the most and and it is it you know it's not easy is it hanging in there with someone you know who has uh, a, a mental illness or you know is in, in mentally distressed you know and and sometimes it's just made to seem like so so fluffy like you know um... and it's not fluffy you know it's not it's not this like you can't you can't solve everything by telling people that you've hashtagged and hope they're okay you know I the amount of times people say it's attention seeking oh leave her there's nothing you can do they're beyond help just don't help her and I've been told that pretty much my whole life you know by one agency or another because I'm difficult you know and you know I there's never a time I look at a hashtag and feel comforted by that I think you've no fucking clue because you, you couldn't this is never going to engage someone like me I mean my you know I think our, our years at getting older and be, becoming a bit more self-aware have paid off in terms of the way that we manage our life now but if I was my 15 year old self and I saw someone writing about Caroline Flack and be kind and I was someone who was experiencing suicidal ideation I would just think fuck all the way off yeah I think that's it I mean that's the thing that annoys me the most is as someone who has had mental ill health and experienced stigma and social rejection and you know all of that stuff you know, see so you post this thing and I think that's brilliant. Like it's it's brilliant that we speak out and it's brilliant that we can be more open about where we are on the mental health scale and and, and our own challenges. I also um, used to work in a, a mental health charity, music and mental health charity in London, where, you know, it was really the seri- severe end of mental illness. And, you know, just seeing, you know, how is that going to really change their lives because they're living in in abject poverty you know they need systemic change and it was also that that difficult thing of you know unless you're in complete crisis you know there's what is there you know what what help is there available it's like go and get some help well okay I've got a six-month waiting list to get an appointment with my GP that's why we need systemic change because that's not good enough I know. And I think that's a, that's another problem as well, is that no one's really sure what help they're entitled to, how they get it. And particularly at the moment during COVID, it's really difficult to get into even secondary care services. You know, so going to the GP and then, then them referring you out. You know, that's always been quite difficult because, you know, I don't want to be political about it, but I will. You know, there's been so many cuts to, to um, support groups. Um, day centres for mental health where people go who've got severe and enduring mental health where they can go and do things like learning to cook or be part of arts and crafts or learn skills that are going to arm them for life you know they've been cut Um, and there's hardly any psychiatric beds you know in hospitals there's nothing you know we're we're really running on empty as a a service as a UK-wide service you know unless we signpost to charities and you go private not everybody's got money to go private I couldn't afford to go private and I've been so desperate at points in my life that I had no other choice but to do that I know it's like 60 quid an hour to see somebody and talk through all of your distress when part of your distress is that you don't have any money but there are so many good charities out there that do things like text apps where people can talk via text or live chat or um, you know people can talk to people on the phone and then there are places that people can drop in when Covid's not 
kicking everyone's a-hole but you know there are charities that people can go to and engage with but other than that you know we're in a real state of flux in mental health services and we're completely saturated by people who are in new crisis at the moment which is only ever going to push people who have got an existing illness back because they think okay well you're all right for a minute but they're not you know they're not obviously you're talking about the effect of like covid on on mental health and that is you know that's that's scary and kind of unfolding now um i guess um i guess we all know like anecdotally how it's affecting the people around us um there's going to be a high price to pay um in terms of the mental health crisis but in terms of man down what's your obviously we are kind of getting back to life a little bit now um and things are coming out of lockdown and and what's the future for man down where where are things going with you well, the, th- the future was really, really uncertain because a lot of our funding streams were cut because we were relying on industry events and festivals. Um, so, yeah, that was really uncertain for us. We spent a real, we spent a year just not really knowing what we're doing. But we've managed to. We did a um, a t-shirt collab with Kid Acne, who's a really great artist, who's kindly gave us some artwork. We managed to sell enough of those t-shirts to get the the film in edit. Um, whether we've got enough money to finish the edit is another thing. So the film will be finished and the launch will be on the 8th of July. Um, and then once the film is out there, that's when the hard work really begins, which sounds ludicrous really, but that's when I have to find space and time to sit and write and finish the training programmes to think about, I've got to listen to all the interviews again and think about all the stories that I was told, start writing, and then I need to start promoting getting into industries. So we're in a real rock and a hard place. We rely on donations. We rely on people buying our merchandise. We rely on people just being really kind and doing stuff for nothing. But we can't keep doing that, you know. And Man Down isn't a multi-million pound business. It is never going to be that. I'm not in it to see this as my job for the rest of my life. That's not what I want. I just want to do something where I can put my head on the pillow at night and know that I've done something good and if I can change just one, not just one person's life, but one situation or one event, then that's it for me. You know, I've, I've done something. I've gonna, done a good job of work. I think we're going to wrap it up now, but I just want to hear about one of the happiest days of your life. One of the happiest days of my life was um, was Lola, you know, as difficult as the pregnancy was, you know, just the the even though i was depressed and i was depressed from the moment she came out the 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 feeling of looking at somebody who i just loved so fucking totally and unapologetically and i knew would grow to love me and my eccentricities and quirks as well um and i think you know on a really good day i know the happiest days of my life are now you know and and with her and the fact that she still wants to hang out with me and cuddle me and hold my hand in public and tell me i'm great in public you know and um yeah she's she's the happiest she's the happiest most amazing thing that's ever happened to me and she you know she really did save my life so yeah i'm really grateful to her oh that's beautiful and what about the song that gives you life oh god a song that gives me life there's so many what a terrible question Millie <laughs> <laughs> just the last okay, maybe the last one that gave you life um I would definitely say um 
Okay, I would definitely say Jill Scott Golden every single time I hear it. Or A. Marie, um, One Thing by A. Marie. Yeah, I know that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a good one. That's a good one because that always makes me slut drop. Oh, if you can slut drop it in your 40s, you're a better woman than me. And if you can slut drop post-baby, you're a better woman than most women. So, yeah. I think if I slut drop now, I'd probably need the help of two healthcare professionals to get me back up. And that is that is that is me being, that's me operating on very low staffing figures in the NHS. I mean, I haven't tried it for a while, but I might just give it a go now. Okay, just can, can still you got please it. report back? I will, I will. <laughs> Thank you so much to Gemma Jennison from Man Down. I so enjoyed that conversation. Oh my God, so much honesty and insight. What a woman. If you want to find out more about Man Down and also access to that blog post that Gemma mentioned about how to talk to someone who's suicidal, then I put links to all of that in the show description. And thank you to you for listening. Please do let me know your thoughts. Um, you can come and join us. Uh, follow the podcast at Back to Life Pod on Instagram. And I would also invite you to leave a review or rating if you've enjoyed this episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe so that you can be the first to know when the next episode drops, which will be in two weeks. Until then, take care of yourself and look out for your nightmare mates. See you soon. Bye.